Hi, James. Ben, how are you? I'm good. I mean, I've been sitting here waiting to podcast, <laughs> pestering you, saying, when can we get up back on? Everyone thinks it's my fault we're not podcasting, and it is completely 100% your fault. Yes, that's actually kind of true. Uh, I mean, so we took the usual summer break, but I've been working on an IPO for Cloudflare, which has been an amazing experience, and we might get into it. But one of the things about working on an IPO is there's such a thing as a quiet period. And I had this horrible vision of me being the story whereby something I said on this podcast resulted in the IPO getting delayed, and it's not really the kind of publicity that I wanted. So you very graciously agreed to extend the summer a little longer. Uh, that's not totally right. I mean, it's always nice to take a break. Absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. Hopefully that's the case for our listeners as well. But yeah, you've also been extremely busy. I'm actually very interested to hear more about this. I think that IPOs are obviously a strong topic of interest, generally speaking, but particularly in the last sort of month or so with some of the perhaps less successful attempts at IPOing. And I don't know, I like I kind of like to give the floor to you. So just so everyone has context, I think everyone here knows you are a public officer for Cloudflare. Cloudflare successfully IPOed earlier this month. So that's great. You can talk about it a little bit now. You can't give forward-looking statements, which probably gives some sort of disclosure here. But what's it like? like oh, well, here's a, here's a good question. When did the process start? Like, how long does this sort of take to do? So, great question. The process is roughly around six months. And I guess the way that I would frame this, I mean, obviously, the purpose of an IPO is to take the company from being a private company to being a public company, trading on the public markets. You pick a stock exchange and then people can buy and sell the shares. But the way I would actually frame this whole process, it reminded me of something else that I have both done and you've done as well. And also I've helped people with, which is going through the process of applying for grad school. There's a surprising amount of similarity. The process of applying for grad school is basically like finding a narrative, which is you're explaining to someone why you've done what you've done, where you're at right now, and what the plans are for the future. And you want to create a thread that maps through those various things. And whether you're applying for grad school or creating an S1 document, which is the IPO document, which then feeds into all the various bits and pieces like analyst day, where you meet with the folks who are going to cover your stock or the roadshow where you meet with potential investors, et cetera, et cetera. That narrative is alongside with the financials and obviously all the work that goes into the company the 10 years prior, just like everything you do before you actually make the grad school application, really important. But that thread of finding it the whole way through is the really important thing. And you start with, okay, what's the story? And actually, as we were going through that process, it reminded me a little bit of our conversations where You've described how when you watch a keynote, the most interesting thing for you inside of the process of watching a keynote is actually the context and the framing that the deliverer gives. And it's kind of the same thing in terms of going through an IPO process. What is the story that you want to tell investors? Like, what's the framing? Obviously, there's a bunch of work that's led up to and a whole bunch of strategy that's gone into the company. But how are you going to tell this story right now? Obviously, it helps a lot when you're working with a company where the founders have been incredibly strategic in terms of thinking about where they're going. To give a little bit of flavor of the story of Cloudflare, again, 
trends that we've talked about here on this podcast. If you think about the IT stack, there are three absolutely critical components. There's the network stack, there's the application layer, and then there's at the base, the store and compute. And what's been really interesting is we've actually talked about it on this podcast, how there's been winners in each of those in the previous paradigm. And there are a number of players in the store and compute in the previous paradigm. You think about Dell and HP and Compaq and all the various folks that you would go to when you wanted the on-premise version of store and compute. If you go up a layer, it's interesting. There used to be a lot fewer players in the application space. So you think about Microsoft, you think about SAP, Oracle, like these were the critical enterprise application players, but there are only a few. And then you go up one more layer into the network layer, and then there was a proliferation like with the bottom. You'd have Cisco, you'd have F5, all the folks the way you'd buy the boxes that you put in racks, probably near your store and compute on-premise to speed things up, to keep them secure, to make them reliable. Just to interrupt your narrative, because I think it will help your narrative going forward. I think what you made is a really interesting point because we've talked about in value chains, the value sort of accrues wherever you could sort of constrict that value chain or because you get some level of integration or wherever it might be. And the implication of what you're saying is that while there's lots of these folks at the sort of infrastructure layer or storage compute layer, there weren't that many in the application layer and there are a bunch of folks in the network layer. Well, what's the implication of that? What was the most valuable layer? It was the application layer. That's right. Where you had Microsoft, you had SAP, you had Oracle, basically the three sort of giants of the V1.0 of broad IT. Well, I guess 1.0 is IBM, but like the next sort of generation. And if you think about the way you just described the value chain, it makes sense. Whereas on the infrastructure side or storage and compute side, Dell and HP, very valuable companies, not Microsoft, right? Definitely on not. the network side, lots of valuable companies, few the scale of sort of Microsoft or Oracle. I mean, Cisco kind of was, but it's mainly because they bought all the other networking companies, you know? And so I just want to interject that because I think that might give context for where you're going. I think it's exactly right. So you think about it, if those things are laid on top of each other, like the visual is almost like one pyramid and then an inverted pyramid on top. Like there's a lot of narrowness around the application layer and there's a lot of fatness. There are a lot of players in both the network and the store and compute layer. That's right. And there's an inverse relationship between like the thickness of the layer and how valuable the companies are that own that spot. So the fact that the application was very narrow means those companies were insanely valuable. Whereas when it's wider, still good companies, but not quite the same sort of scale. And then what changed it? It's something that folks have been listening to this podcast for a while or read Stratechery for a while would completely recognize, which is the shift to the cloud. It completely upended the approaches. So you think about the base layer storage and compute, you go from having all these different providers, the Dells and the HPs, where you just go online, buy a server, and these were pretty much similar, like it was relatively commoditized, to only a handful of players that are able to support the economics of being able to provide store and compute inside the cloud. And these are obvious players that you'd be familiar with. This is AWS, GCP, Microsoft, Azure, Alibaba. Yeah, and what's interesting about that, by the way, just to sort of interject, is 
everyone talks about there being like we aside Alibaba, which is clearly the fourth player. But from the Western companies, it's you know you talk about oh it's AWS, Azure, and GCP, and people talk about them as if they're three equivalent companies, and they're actually not at all. Right? There's AWS, which is really really big. There's Azure, which is decently big, but still like less than half the size. And then there's GCP, which is way smaller. And if you visualize this on a curve, it's the exact curve we see in technology again and again and again, where you have this sort of exponential return where the winner is absolutely massive. The second winner is doing really well. The third winner is kind of muddling along, which might be generous when it comes to GCP. And then you have the long tail of if you have the right cost structure and niche focus, you can have a nice business, but it's nothing relative to sort of the big players. It's really interesting. You're actually seeing that same curve that you see in lots of other places play out in this massive world-changing billions and billions and billions of dollars sector. And then what's interesting is how if that's gone from like visually very wide to very narrow with just a handful of players and the effects that you're just describing taking place, then what's also interesting is what's happened a layer above in the application layer. And really the preeminent example of a company that effectively was the blueprint for how this transition happened with salesforce.com where with the original no software tagline and they basically hosted applications for you you didn't have to run it you didn't have to maintain it they provided the underlying infrastructure to make it all work and you just logged in through a web interface or through an application on your phone or whatever it might be and no maintenance and you move towards this subscription model. I mean, this is all the wonderful goodness of B2B SaaS that we've talked about so many times on this podcast where you align incentives, the software keeps getting better. And in the same way that's happened with lots of these folks, when it's true disruption, it's true of AWS as well. They start at the bottom of the market with underserved folks who can't afford to roll their own CRMs. And then they just move up market, up market, up market until now the likes of Salesforce. But there's an absolute proliferation of these types of companies. And so you've gone from a handful like Microsoft and SAP and Oracle to all these B2B SaaS companies that are able to talk to each other, that maintain the infrastructure to run the applications for you. This is why I brought that context before, because there is a direct relationship between the narrowing at the base of the value chain and the dramatic expansion in the middle of the value chain. And this is the conservation of attractive profits in action. The integration shifted to another spot, which enabled and allowed for an explosion at the other layer. And like you can build valuable companies at that middle layer. And we're seeing that. And speaking of IPOs, like people talk about, oh, it's been a rough IPO year. Actually, it's been a pretty good IPO year. Just all the successful IPOs are all in this middle layer. They're all these SaaS companies that are doing very well. And it's no accident it happened at the same time of the narrowing layer before it. Like those are directly connected and they're connected on multiple levels. A technological level, just because that base level exists, it lets these companies be built, but also that flows directly into the ultimate outcomes of the various companies at these different levels, like how large they could be, their revenue potential, and their market power and level of competitiveness that they have to deal with. So the one thing I will say is, I hope that that layer is not the only place where the successful tech Well, no, continue on. So the question is, I know what you're driving towards. I think it should be obvious to everyone listening. So you had previously a pyramid on the bottom, an inverted pyramid at the top, and a squeeze in the middle. So if that bottom pyramid has flipped such that there's a consolidation and integration on the bottom and tremendous profits to be had and a sort of explosion in the middle level where you can build lots of nice companies, but you're not going to build you know, necessarily something the size and scale of AWS. What is happening to sort of the networking layer? Is that top triangle also flipping? 
it is absolutely flipping. There's been a concentration. And it's interesting how this has happened. This layer has kind of lagged the others. And I think that was in part because just on-premise, like you move your applications and then the boxes that you built to get security and performance still kind of worked on-premise, but they weren't great because you were tromboning traffic around. By the way, I have to say, it's usually on-premises and people always get mad when we say on-premise. So just to warn you, just to warn you. Oh, so I've been dealing with that as well, actually. We (laughs) we made a very strategic decision. This is on-premise, but yes, I understand. Oh, so it's interesting because I had this debate. I doubled down on the... I'm going to say on-premise because it's better than on-premises. And I finally gave in a couple of years ago because I was so sick of getting the emails about it every time I typed it. I refuse to be worn down. Yes, we're on-premise. As long as we've established that we know there is an argument about it, so you don't need to email us. So anyhow, (laughs) sorry. Continue. Please continue. Effectively, as more and more stuff has moved to the cloud, the notion of having on-premise network layer makes less and less sense. And it's just the case that the timing is right. Like it's starting to tip in the same way that it was starting to tip inside the store and compute layer and the application layer. We're starting to see it tip at the network layer as more and more stuff comes into the cloud. The need to secure those applications, make those applications performant, make them reliable are still there. But if you're relying on on on-premise network, you can't buy a Cisco box and ship it to AWS. You need something else. And effectively, this is the area that Cloudflare is operating in. All those boxes that you used to buy from Cisco and F5 and Juniper and everything, it makes no sense to buy that hardware in a world of the cloud. A cloud-based solution will work equally well if you have a hybrid solution, if you're natively in the cloud, et cetera, et cetera. And again, in the same way that when you go into a subscription with your SaaS enterprise software provider, it's the same thing at the network layer. This aligns incentives. It takes what was a capitalized costs and operationalizes it. I mean, the interesting thing for me is like, when you think about ways in which you can build a network like this, there are really three ways you can build like a global network that's across hundreds of cities all around the world. So you're getting closer and closer to end users. So you're able to deliver better and better performance. And one is do something like what Netflix or Facebook did, which is create an application that's in such demand that it causes you to need to build out a network. One approach, which is to basically go to the top end of the market, which was the approach particularly Akamai took around CDN early on in its life, and it's expanded a little bit since those early days. But the other approach is, and this is basically the last way you can build out a network, is to basically say the long tail all needs these types of network services. And actually, there are a bunch of advantages of getting a broad range of traffic. You get to see attack patterns. You get to build relationships with ISPs all around the world such that they're symbiotic, like we go into an ISP around the world, they increase their revenue because it's a faster experience for their customers, but it also lowers their costs because like we're providing the content out of there. And like that gets us access to all these places that otherwise we wouldn't be able to get access to. And now there are just limited places left. Like someone can't come along and really do what Akamai has done. If you're in the Netflix or the Facebook version of it and you're building an application, why would you get into network services? You're focused on the application. And we've come along and effectively built a network up by aggregating the long tail. And in the same way that AWS and Salesforce has moved up market as they started at the bottom and in classic disruption fashion, moved up market, that's effectively what Cloudflare has done too. And it's not a big surprise 
Matthew and Michelle were with me at HBS, and Matthew was actually a student of Clay Christensen's, so got access to some of this theory very early on. Again, AWS, Salesforce.com have perfected this playbook. Start at the bottom, get a whole bunch of people who are being underserved, and move up market. And that's effectively what we've been doing at the network layer. Comments and explanation should not be taken as forward-looking. <laughs> yes, thank you um, <laughs> I actually sat down with our general counsel yesterday. Hi, Doug. And basically, he's fantastic. I was like, Doug, I might be talking about the IPO tomorrow. Like, what is it that I should say? And he was like, you know, the, not a recommendation to buy stuff, disclosing. That would be good. I was like, you wrote this in the S1. Yes. Everything you said, you could read in the S1. And I think it's, one, it's a compelling vision. I believe in it. I wrote about it when the S1 came out. And actually, the more you talk, the more I sort of regret not doing like a full weekly article with like charts and graphs on it. In part because I think this physics question is like a fascinating one. Because again, to go back to the visual of the previous paradigm with this triangle on the bottom and this inverted triangle on the top. And basically what happened was you had a squeezing of the bottom. We had this cloud idea come along. And to your point, it's not something that happens instantaneously, right? The vast majority of enterprise compute is still done on-prem. Like the amount that's in the cloud is like 10% or maybe it might even be less than that. And that's why like Cisco's not going away tomorrow. Jupyter Network's not going away tomorrow. That entire market still exists. Dell still exists. HP still exists. And so it's a process. But what happens is the existence of AWS, and again, I've written this before, like AWS is one of the like probably top three most important developments in the history of technology. And what it created was it created the environment for this application explosion. And this also came on the same time as mobile. And the reason why that mattered is because mobile dramatically accelerated the usefulness of cloud applications. Because now it's not like people were working at their desks, they were working all over the place. And to reach them all over the place via your on-premises software, and then you had to get VPNs, and you had to get all this sort of thing, all of which is services that Cloudflare does, by the way, but they're doing it with the assumption of devices anywhere in the world. They're doing it with the assumption that every device is insecure. And it's a completely different point of view than all these other processes that assumed everyone was on the intranet, and the exceptions were people that were VPN inning from a salesperson from like another state or something. And so just completely different approaches. And so you have these cloud services that enable the creation of these new kinds of companies. And those companies get traction because they serve these mobile use cases that Microsoft and a lot of the other incumbents were not serving. And so that gets into market that much faster. And so you get this huge explosion in the middle layer. And what happens is that explosion is like it builds on itself. Because if you're a company, you start using one SaaS application, it becomes much easier to use a second SaaS application. It's much easier to use a third SaaS application. Then you get a service like Okta to do a single sign-on and tie them all together, and now it's easier to get a fourth. And so your typical company actually has well over 100 applications that they're using that are all over the place. And so it feeds on itself. If you started out where at the bottom you had a squeezing that led to an expansion in the middle layer, that middle layer is almost like a nuclear explosion where it starts building on itself, it gets wider and wider, and that creates a vacuum to the top where it starts sucking in the top, where to your point, to think that your Cisco VPN box on your internet is going to serve your needs is laughable, right? Like you have to actually have something that scales across all those hundreds of applications. And you don't get that by having hundreds of solutions. You get that by having one solution because the inverse of the complexity is that point of integration. And so just like you had the point of integration at the bottom, you end up needing it at the top as well. And that's obviously sort of the opportunity that Cloudflare is pursuing. 
Right. So what you just described is the zero trust model of security enterprise networking. Whereas once upon a time, this notion, everything inside your office was secure, obviously with the proliferation of devices and SaaS applications, like people putting stuff into Microsoft Word, that notion doesn't work anymore. This is, again, where the on-prem model doesn't work particularly well. But if you have a network that's global, so you have users that are roaming all around the world, you have people in offices all around the world, rather than backhauling all the traffic back to a single point where you can do data loss prevention or whatever you need to do to check that people aren't doing stuff they shouldn't be, having a network everywhere is really, really important because your users are now everywhere, whether they're employees or whether they're end customers. And from a performance perspective, that's absolutely essential. And that then becomes a competitive advantage for us as this world continues, because if you just have it all centralized in one spot, the performance required to serve mobile users all around the the world, like hauling it all back to one spot and then sending it back over the world makes no sense. You want to push it out to the edge as close to the users as possible. And for that, you need a network that's global. Yeah. And what's so fascinating about this, and we might be getting into a tutorial that you can't comment on, is the sort of implication here is, does it actually make sense to have three layers or are there actually only two layers? And by which I mean, does infrastructure broadly, is it really storage and compute on the bottom and networking on the top? Or is storage, compute, and networking actually one area? I, mean, I think I commented this in Stratechery that one of my favorite parts with the Cloudflare S1 was your listing of competitors. And obviously, you had things like Cisco and stuff on those lines your competitors. But there was also AWS and Azure and on those lines, which I think is, again, you don't need to comment on it. But I think it's inevitable because if you go back to that triangle, the triangle, inverted triangle, there was never going to be any sort of competition between sort of the – well, there was a bit between sort of the networking and the – Dell and HPs, because they all did live in the same data center. The markets were large enough and the difference in, in applications were large enough that it ended up being different companies. But even then, what actually happened to those, even before the cloud, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of on a tangent here, but what happened to both of them is they both got commoditized. They both went x86. And so what was the real challenge to say your custom Cisco box and what did Google do and what did Facebook do? They built their own routing equipment using x86 and doing it all in software. And so you had software-defined networking and all this sort of stuff that was a big challenge to things like Cisco. And Cisco would go on and say, oh, you know, our dedicated hardware is better at it. And it was, but it was still a very disruptive pattern to come up. And same thing happened in the server. It happened sooner in the server space where you had all these custom boxes from Sun or from all these sorts of things. And what happened, we said Dell and HP, what was Dell's entire play? The entire reason why Dell became a huge player in the server space is because it got commoditized to x86. And Windows, the same thing. Windows was not a player in the server market. Windows was actually, or Microsoft, I should say, people don't realize this, but Microsoft is one of the most disruptive companies in tech history. And the reason is because the way they leveraged commodity hardware to basically wipe out huge numbers of people in the back office by writing on x86. And so what happened was you ended up where the routing world and the networking world and the storage and compute world actually started running on the same hardware and was getting very close together even in the past. And so you fast forward to this new world. It's like, well, they're probably maybe more in the same space than our initial sort of visualization of the value chain indicated. 
I 100% agree. I can still talk about this because this is one of the things that we touched on in the S1. Like, it's no mistake that we listed them as competitors, and it's really along two fronts. Like, they're going to attempt to move into our space. That's right, because they have their own networking products. Right, they do. I would argue that they're not as solid as ours. Of course you would. But the advantage they have is like it's an integrated play. Like I think you use CloudFront on Stratechery. And if you're already on AWS, like that's a pretty compelling value proposition. It's just like check a box and you've got a whole bunch of the networking services that Amazon provides. I would say two things. One, it's not a core competency of theirs. And I would say our performance is pretty solid in comparison. But two, everything Amazon does is designed to lock you in. And if you speak to more and more folks who are CIOs and CTOs, it used to be that the biggest concern that they had around cloud computing was security. That is increasingly switching to vendor lock-in. And it's the same whether it's AWS or GCP or Microsoft or whatever. They'll make it super easy for you to turn this on. But the problem is the more you turn on that's theirs, the harder it is for you to switch between the various clouds. And that becomes a big problem, A, because the different clouds have different advantages. But B, once they know you're locked in, they have a lot more pricing power over you. And so people are looking to be able to switch between vendors. And the advantage of having us is we can effectively act as like the single pane of glass in a multi-cloud strategy to allow you to shift loads between the different clouds without having to set up policies within each of them and try and manage two or three or whatever it might be. The great thing about what you just said is the entire structure of enterprise computing can transform, but all the talking points stay the exact same. The whole like, well, yes, but what we provide is we help you avoid vendor lock-in. Like, it sounds like, did you know, what was the number one talking point for Oracle for the first 20 years of their existence? is we prevent vendor lock-in, which was hilarious because they were the kings of vendor lock-in. I'm not saying you're not wrong. Your point is well made that if you have Cloudflare sort of on top, you can shift stuff around on the bottom and without sort of your end users noticing. So I'm not saying it's not wrong. I just enjoy the fact that we had this long discourse on how the entire structure of enterprise computing has changed. And then you had a point straight from the 1980s, which is not to say the point is wrong, but sorry, I myself am amused. I hope you're amused with me. And if not, I apologize for making you feel bad. I mean, like the nature of these things haven't changed. People care about the same stuff. Now we might be going from on-premise into the cloud, but like if this is going to be one of the largest items in your budget, like this is something people care about. So so forgive me for uh, for sort of taking the fist out of you there. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 mock, mock no, I'm not mocking. I'm like enjoying it's... the moment in which you are totally doing your job. And also, <laughs> I find it very funny. <laughs> Sorry, you were continuing on to point number two. I guess the point that's more interesting is the store and compute layer, which is, this is the point around collapsing. So if there's one place where we're going to meet, which is like our core territory, there's another place where we're going to meet, and that's their core territory. Now, if you think about fundamentally, the way that Cloudflare's network's been architected is it's, just like you said, it's commodity x86 hardware all around the world in all these data centers. And every one of those servers runs every one of the pieces of software in our stack. And there was a bunch of very hard engineering work involved to get that to work First, just to work at all, but secondly, to work in a highly performant way because milliseconds matter here. Now, if we've been able to create a network which is able to execute these applications for our customers, the realization came to us, well, 
And this especially happened as we moved up market, because as we moved up market, the demands of the enterprise customers became greater and greater. They wanted more and more, whether it was a firewall or whatever, they wanted specific rules. And one way of doing it would be to create a custom interface. I think that the insight was, well, if we're able to program it, is there a way in which we can allow our customers to program the network such that they can create what they want, create the customizations they want, and they get all the performance benefits. And normally the way this happens is you do it through containers, which is the way that a lot of AWS EC2 runs. But like for things like firewall or caching or all these network applications, that would be way too slow because the time involved to spin up a container is so great. The overhead is so great that it slows everything down and you need to build out a network and CPU levels that are much greater than what's able to do if you're trying to push everything to the edge. Like if you have big centralized data centers, that works great. But if you're trying to push everything out and decentralize, you want everything to be as lightweight as possible. And actually, some of our engineers figured out that the technology inside the web browser known as isolates, it's the V8 engine inside of Chrome actually, is the perfect model to allow people in a very lightweight way to run code. Like that's effectively what a browser does. It's the reason why it's very easy to have hundreds of browser tabs open, but you can't have hundreds of operating systems running inside your computer. And so we deployed this and allowed our customers access to it. And they started by tweaking firewalls and so on and so forth. What was completely unexpected though was they started to build web applications with it. And that's the product Cloudflare Workers, which has been a thing that I've been particularly focused on since I started working at Cloudflare, which is how to make it frictionless, how to bring this into the market in such a way that uh, people can adopt it. And I believe it's truly disruptive in the same way you went from on-premise store and compute to cloud store and compute. And like, this is the- Basically node store and compute. Yes, effectively, right. And the advantage of it is twofold. One is it's truly edge compute. So a user wherever in the world, let's say in Sydney right now, tries to run your web application, it gets routed to our data center in Sydney and it spins up there. And the cold start times are negligible because it's the same technology as inside the browser. It's really close to the user. And so it's super fast. Even if we're doing it for a whole bunch of different customers. The second big advantage is it's truly serverless. So if you're a small developer, like picking cloud availability regions and the process of going from creating an instance to scaling up an instance, if your application gets successful and all the SREs required to manage that goes away. That's our expertise is in terms of creating highly performant, globally scalable applications, because that's effectively what Cloudflare is. It's like that across an entire network globally. And we've opened it up for developers to use. And I think it's disruptive relative to AWS because they have built their model around big centralized data centers with containers. And that worked great in the shift from you own the hardware and you own the software to, oh, I don't own the hardware, but I still need to manage the software. This is effectively the next evolution, which is it's extremely distributed. You don't have to manage any of it. You simply write the code and it deploys very, very quickly within seconds all across the network. And when a user calls it, it immediately runs at the data center closer to them. So we're not going to have an AWS executive on to argue their case. So I think we might need to cut you off at this point. All I will say is it is a compelling argument. And again, if you go back to the physics that we talked about before, you end up with a choke point in the middle and 
on either side of the choke point, there's massive commodification and distribution. And so the argument for an AWS is they are a choke point. On one side, there's a huge number of applications. And on the other side, there's a huge number of basically processors. And it's all commoditized, right? And so you think about it, if AWS is a point of integration, what is happening on either side of that point of integration that demonstrates that the modularization commodification that you would expect is happening? And it's always been a little unsatisfying from the AWS perspective to say that, well, it's just that they buy a lot of processors. Yes, that's true, but it seems almost sort of immaterial, particularly since that shift already happened, you know, back in sort of the enterprise day. And I think what makes the Cloudflare argument compelling is the distribution commodification is the shift from large data centers to nodes, basically. Instead of Amazon Briggs, they have X number of data centers around the world and Y number of regions. It's like, actually, no, that's still too integrated. That's still too tied together. If you want to truly drive commodification on the other side of this point of integration, you actually have to go further and they haven't gone far enough. And Cloudflare's point is actually, no, we've driven it to its logical conclusion. I would say it spins between the advantages of centralization and decentralization as you go through paradigms. And centralization played a really big advantage in a container-based world because you wanted to have a lot of stuff and it would be going to a specific region. These would be heavyweight. And the constraint was getting access to the CPUs, not the latency. But as we move into a world that's much more mobile, that's much more global, and particularly when you think about the wave of IoT devices that are going to be coming down. And if you think about it going from mainframes to desktops to laptops to mobile and now to IoT, it's decentralized. It's less in one spot, but the number of devices have proliferated and therefore having a very lightweight, very distributed way of doing compute is going to be absolutely essential to meet the needs of that because not everybody wants lots of compute in these devices, but if you can offload it in a performant way to something really close by, again, you can take what was a capital cost and operationalize it. Yeah, I think there's like a Newtonian aspect to this idea, the law of conservation of attractive profits, which is that like every action has an equal and opposite reaction. And I think the point that you just made, I think very well, is as the use case device proliferates and goes to the edge, by necessity, the corresponding networking and compute needs to go to the edge. So and that makes the point before, if everyone is using a PC on their desk, then having networking that's centralized on the internet makes sense, like it's a match. And when you go to mobile, well, then you need sort of cloud. But if you go to the Internet of Things, for example, where it's a exponential increase in devices, then you need a similar exponential increase in capability as far as compute goes. There is a relationship there. I mean, it's interesting. So we started off this conversation along the lines of like talking about IPOs. I think you have sufficiently explained Cloudflare. (laughs) Right. But like, it's actually funny because the nature of this conversation, at least my perspective of the process, kind of reflected what it's like, which is the hard part is at the front, figuring out how to tell the story. And it's not that all the strategy in the- Right. I I can imagine there's some aspect of this conversation. You're like, crap, I would like to go back and rewrite that part of the S1 because we just kind of just are articulated what I was trying to say, and now we've said it better. I mean, I would have loved to have recruited you to the process of helping, unfortunately. Yeah, and for for the record, James followed the rules. I was not involved. (laughs) No, actually, I think it's fair for people to ask. Like, no, this is actually the first time we've really talked about this because I couldn't talk to you about it. And just full disclosure, like everything I wrote about Cloudflare, I came to on my own. I actually just said the same thing. I kind of wish I should have gone back and written that Cloudflare 
daily update as a weekly article and blowed it up a million times because actually talking to you, it's like, wait, there's actually a really compelling structural story about technology to tell here. But we followed the rules. We did not talk about it. Right. But inside the IPO process, like that's the critical part. It's like the hard part at the start is doing the work and figuring out the story, like the structural reasons for being and how you play into it. It's like going into that narrative. And then from there, it's like, okay, getting that down into a document and then it then proliferates into a bunch of different documents. So you file with the SEC and then you go through this process called testing the waters where the SEC has allowed you to present a limited version of what was in the S1 and you go out and meet with specific investors and there are very strict rules around not being able to say stuff that's not included in the S1, but to get feedback and feel like how you're doing. And then the document flips to going public and then you go through this process of analyst day where all the different folks inside the organization speak to the story. Like you have the head of product, the CEO, obviously, everybody comes and explains how it all fits together. So the people who cover the stock are able to understand the business. And that becomes important because after that, you go out on a roadshow where you meet with big institutional investors. And the crazy thing is the institutional investors call up the analysts. It's like, okay, we met with this company. Like we want to understand it better. And some of the institutional investors will literally call all the analysts to like understand it because you're talking about organizations like Fidelity that are investing huge quantities of money. And then you go through that and hopefully it's successful. And then you get to the allocation process where you're deciding in increments of 200 shares, how many shares you allocate. And that's its own art form as well. You want to heavily weight towards long-term investors who are going to hold the stock and who really believe in you. But there are a whole bunch of other factors to consider. Like you don't want to piss off certain hedge funds because if they feel like they've had the bird flip, they can really start to play with your stock price. The other big consideration is on the day of going public, you want to make sure there's liquidity in the market. Right. That's a huge thing people don't understand is like you have to have sufficient stock to be traded. And that's a huge, especially with the lockups where the employees can't trade their stock and a lot of, some investors can't. Like there's just not enough stock out there. It causes a lot of problems. Yeah. You're also trying to allocate to some folks who you know who are going to literally turn around and sell the shares or that perhaps the banks might have a relationship with such that depending on market conditions, you could convince them to buy or sell to like shore up or let go of the stock, et cetera, et cetera. This is totally missing a lot of discussion too about the IPO process, right? You actually need those people that flip the stock for an immediate gain because yeah, it's kind of messy and ugly and they're totally just getting a handout from the bank. But you actually need that stock to get into the market and they will do that job for you. Right. I mean, the worst case is a very thin market where there's no liquidity and then crazy stuff like small trades can end up wildly swinging the stock and people pay very close attention to the early movements. Like it's crazy how, I mean, Smile Direct went out before us and their stock on the first day was down. brutal. Yeah, right. Down 30%. And like, we're talking about effectively a graduation process. And this is like the first day of the big leagues where it's like, you're no longer a private company. And that company has hopefully for them a long life in front of them. But everyone assumes that IPO is massively unsuccessful because it's down 30%. At the same time, if you go out and there's too much of a jump, you get criticized for like, oh, you guys left too much money on the table. Or 
what happens is some of these investors have rules written into their investment guidelines where if they make so much percentage on a investment, then they're forced to sell. So you can get these wild whipsaws because you're triggering sell rules inside of some of these big investors. So it's this process of sticking a landing where you kind of want it to go up a little bit, but you don't want it to go up too much. And obviously, you don't really want it to go down. I think that's right. I mean, so just for the record, uh, you guys offered, I think, 15 a share. It is yes. at 19.59 right now in over four days. So about a 33% jump. It's very easy, I think, for people on the outside to say, oh, look at you guys. Look at all that money you left on the table. But I agree with you. I think there's so many factors on the other side. I think the last thing you said is the most important one. You really, really, really don't want the stock to go down for all kinds of reasons. It sounds stupid, but it sets a narrative problem for a company that I think takes a couple years to get out of where if that stock's down. And what happens if you have a massive bias that the stock must go up and a massive bias that it must not go down, inevitably you're going to underprice. It's impossible not to underprice because you play out the probabilities of the two sides. It's like the self-censorship thing, right? Why do people self-censor? And that becomes way more powerful than actual censorship because they're going to overcorrect in a certain direction, right? And that's the exact sort of thing that's there. To me, that's the number one factor by far about why these IPOs pop and quote-unquote money is left on the table. It's because actually the incentives of everyone in the entire thing is aligned around the stock popping. Now, obviously, you'd rather not the stock double and like, crap, I really did leave a lot of money on the table. But given the incentives of everyone involved, including the investors, including the company itself, it's totally normal that these stocks pop up like they do. So I think people get that a little bit. The point about there needing to be liquidity in the market and you need market makers, there is always going to be a price to be paid. You're asking a huge number of people to give you a huge amount of money at one time. And like, if you want to go in the stock market and you want to buy a massive amount of shares of, say, Apple tomorrow. I mean, Apple's probably a bad example because they have more liquidity than anyone. But if you want to go to the market and buy 50% of Apple, you're going to overpay because you have to convince 50% of people to sell to you, right? There's some aspect of the larger a purchase order gets or the larger a sell order gets, the more of a premium you have to pay. And if you think about a company going public for the first time, they're by definition – that's going to need the highest premium of any stock offering they're going to do because they're introducing this massive new thing in the market and they need lots of people to buy out at the same time, which means there needs to be a premium attached to it. You don't get to sell it on a one-to-one basis. You get to sell it on a 110% basis, 150% basis, whatever it might be. Again, it's a big problem if the stock doubles for stay. That's unfair and there's a problem there and the bankers should be held more accountable. On the flip side, the idea that it is a good outcome if a stock goes to market and does not pop and like good, they got all their money. I think that's mistaken and it's a misunderstanding of a lot of the dynamics that are going on here. Yeah, right. It's so interesting. It's so much art. There's so many unexpected twists and turns and archaic things. I got to go to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on opening day, and that was like a super cool experience. A whole bunch of folks went out there, but there's a market maker and they have this screen and the interface, I swear, it looks like SAP designed it back in the 1980s. And literally the process is he's trying to explain it. And I think I got my head around it, but it's so archaic. And like they put out different prices and they yell it out and different people buy like, oh, at that price, this is how many I'll buy. This is how many I'll sell. And they keep moving the price around until they find what they feel is, okay, I think based on what everyone's saying, we've got an appropriate matching of supply and demand. And so this is where we're going to open the stock at. And just watching that process play out over the course of like a couple of hours with people on the phone. And it wasn't like the wild yelling that you get back in the old days, but like they're talking at each other. And sometimes they can't hear because there's so 
were busy on them. Like, what was that? Was that 18 and or 18 or are they? And it's like, we are literally talking about hundreds of millions of dollars and you guys are shouting at each other. This is mind blowing. You know, I think this is a interesting segue. I mean, I'd love to hear more about the process to the extent you can, but I wrote in the daily update yesterday about WeWork. A lot of people are like very upset. I listed like the string of stories for the last couple of weeks where basically the price going down, down, down. We're going to change our governance up. Price is still going down. The stuff is going to buy a lot. It's still going to go down. And a lot of people are very upset about this. Like I was talking to someone was like, oh, the SEC needs to investigate this. I'm like, investigate what? Like what's happening is the market is working, right? Like we were in an environment where the price was set on a one-to-one basis on the private markets, where basically SoftBank and WeWork, between the two of them, decided what the value was. Well, when you actually go public, it's almost like a yay capitalism sort of like argument, right? It's like, what happens in a well-functioning market? Well, you have to come to a market-clearing price where literally thousands and thousands or hundreds of thousands of people have to agree on what this is worth. And guess what? That's way more accurate and way more efficient than two people figuring it out. So the SEC should be patting itself on the back that we have created an environment where a company can be wildly misvalued in one context, but then it goes to an area where it is exposed to lots of people who could potentially lose their shirts. And, oh, guess what? That price gets corrected remarkably quickly. I mean, this is literally like a poster child for this is capitalism working properly. Um it, it, like you, you let people decide and it, it could well be in the short run, the market is wrong. It could be that we work is actually onto something and you draw a very generous with, with your writing earlier this, this summer, you draw a very I, generous I, I, analogy I, 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 with I've AWS. i that, but sorry, continue. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Very generous analogy with AWS. And, and maybe that's right. Like maybe that is the bull case, but it, it's, I mean, it, here's the thing, like, with Uber, there were bulls. There were people that believed in it. With Lyft, there were people who believed it. Like, well, a, a prop, well, price price entails both reward and risk, right? And and I think the and what the market has done has introduced the proper pricing component of risk into WeWork, which is yes, there is a bull case. And the point of my writing that article was like, no one's making the bull case, so I'm going to make the bull case. I mm. thought I was clear in the article that there's no way on earth I would invest in this company, but mm. I was perhaps not clear enough. And I came back the next day. I probably should have made the next daily update uh, public because my point there is like, look, no, th- there is an AWS angle here, but this is not AWS. Like there is a right. degree of scalability and that comes from AWS that you do- you're not getting with WeWork because it's not really a software company. Uh, and so I I kind of regret it. Like it was it was fun to write, right? It's fun to write a contrarian view, and that was. Mm sort of what I was going for, but it kind of got taken a little too literally, which is my own fault. Uh, But it's actually, uh, it's what like I, I, (laughs) it frustrates me with myself that it's out there and that that article will always be there. Again, as fortunately in the article, I say very clearly, there's no way I'd invest this company, but it's actually been very productive for me. I think intellectually where I wrote an article a few weeks later, like what is a tech company? And actually Mm. I think that's going to be the first of a series of articles I've been, been, doing a lot of thinking about. I actually think Mm -hmm. a lot of the thinking around investing in tech is mistaken. There's some degree where the public markets actually value companies in a much more intelligent way than venture capitalists do, which is like surprising when you think about it. Um, I'm not going to give away the thesis, but that's something, but this is inspired by me thinking about WeWork. And again, to be clear, WeWork is, I think, the WeWork story is much more of a soft bank story. I think mm. we have basically an entity that I wrote this in the daily update today. Like 
at some point they're like, oh, you know, my story sounds like we're going to invest in big, big. We want big. We don't want this these small little companies. And they started confusing high capital needs with large outcomes. And mm. just because a company needs a lot of capital does not mean it's inevitably leading to a large outcome. <laughs> and, and if you think about it, that actually like you, you go through their portfolio page. They have a huge number of companies in things like like transportation, like logistics, like real estate. It's not just WeWork. They have they're in like Compass. They're in like a set like multiple sort of real estate uh, plays. And all these they have a lot of fintech. All these are what what is the common thread? The common thread is not necessarily that they're massively profitable businesses. The common thread is they all have massive capital needs. And I feel like they've like the the variable that they've indexed on is needs a lot of capital. And that's translated into will be a huge opportunity, and that might have been a uh, a poor variable to sort of index on. And I think WeWork is sort of the classic example of that. The joke that's coming to mind is you expand to fill available space, and maybe there's some corollary with investing as well, which is like, I mean, I can see the bull case for SoftBank, which is them rolling up and getting all the ride-sharing companies to stop competing internationally and getting them to effectively agree. Which they've done in multiple markets. Right. It's effectively antitrust, but leveled up to an international as opposed to a national-only level because it's involving a player stepping back out, and it's very hard to compel a company to keep operating. At the same time, like what you just described is the absolute bear case, which is like they have a hammer and they think their hammer is lots of capital. And so they go after lots of capital businesses, but they forget that the other requirement is lots of returns. It's interesting because it reminds me of another conversation we had in the context of what we're talking about in the capital markets, which is the criticism of centralization of power. And I remember talking to you about it and you making the point around Facebook and having one entity become so incredibly powerful and the problems that can entail. It's almost like the wisdom of the markets here is the equivalent of where you have one investor and they have a lot of money and a lot of centralization of power. And effectively, if they write the check, well, that's how much it's valued. But then you see how this plays out further down the line. And it turns out that that decentralized power where you have many sets of eyes and you have consensus among a broad number of people actually results in better outcomes than one all-knowing, all-powerful person deciding for us. Oh, it's such a great point. And I said sort of jokingly, this is how capitalism is great. And I think a reason why capitalism in the popular imagination gets criticized because people associate capitalism with very large companies. And we've made this point before. Very large companies are the antithesis of capitalism. Capitalism should be about more competition, not less. And I think the point about SoftBank is particularly well made. You know, I kind of mentioned it when you said it, but SoftBank moved Uber out of Southeast Asia and said, no, Grab is going to be the winner. Uber, do you want to own X percent of Grab or do you want to be crushed? Like this is your choice in the matter. And this is going on at the same time they're trying to buy in on Uber in the US and, and Uber needed that them to buy in. And like literally, it was a central authority dictating how the market would work. Well, now Uber actually goes to the stock market. And guess what? SoftBank's lost a ton of money on them. They're now underwater on Uber. Why? Because it turned out just deciding on high who a winner and loser is, is less efficient and less accurate than sort of the wisdom of the crowd, as it were. Like it raises a question like, well, what about SoftBank's investment in Didi? Or what about their investment in Grab? Like maybe those are actually 
similarly wildly overvalued because we've looked at the structure and say, oh, look, we got a monopoly situation here and we lost track of who's actually keeping track of the actual worth and the actual sort of value of this. And it turns out at some point the market does get to decide and it hasn't been going particularly well for SoftBank in particular. Yeah. Just to be clear on this, I'm like an absolute bull on ride sharing and the future of transportation that that represents. But it sounds like having the markets help to calibrate exactly how much that's worth, at least right now, is obviously a very valuable thing for the reasons. That's another thing that I've come back to again and again. Like, There's distinct questions between is something a real company, is there a real opportunity, and what should the valuation be? Like, Those are different questions. Like Slack, for example. Slack is another software investment, interestingly enough. It had a bit of a rough go of it in the markets. And I've kind of patted myself on the back because I was saying, well, you know, I think actually Microsoft is a much bigger threat here, and Microsoft's been taking off, and Slack's going down. That does not mean there's not a huge opportunity here. Like, They've just gone from being 30x revenue to being 15x revenue. 15x revenue is still a tremendously valuable company with, by definition, has a massive growth in front of it, right? Like that's a huge multiple. Just because it wasn't 30x does not mean it's a failure. This happens a lot with the IPOs. You can be bearish on a valuation and a stock while also being bullish on the overall opportunity. It's a question of like, how do you price it correctly? And I think this gets to be a real disconnect, I think, for people in tech, because in tech in particular, either it's kind of a bifurcation. Either you're these massively large companies where the stock price is so high that it's kind of like immaterial to your day-to-day life. Like if Apple's worth a trillion dollars or $900 billion, if you think about it, $100 billion is an unbelievably large amount of money, but no one actually cares because it's like the number is so big, like it doesn't actually make any difference in most people's day-to-day life. Or else you're on the very small side where going from being a $100 million company to a $300 million company, that's $200 million compared to Apple's $100 billion change. It's nothing, but it's astronomical in the context of like sort of your day-to-day life. So people understand those two worlds, but there's this middle world, you know, is Slack a $30 billion company or a $15 billion company? It's like, that's a big number, but it's like, how can you still be super optimistic about a problem space and a company while also saying, yeah, they need to be cut in half. It's kind of a weird place to be in a headspace. And I think actually when my writing, I need to do a better job of saying when I'm talking about valuation versus when I talk about opportunity. So like we work, like I was talking about opportunity, but I was never in a million years when I find a company at the valuation it was at, right? And that was my mistake was not being clear. Like, oh, there actually is something potentially here, but the valuation is bat crap insane. So you have to be precise about what you're talking about in all these sort of situations. Sorry, there's a long rambling uh, covering my rant, No, no, no. But- I think it's super valuable. It's just like understanding the relativity of these things. Like valuation is a relative thing. And it's easy to lose track of that when you get excited about something and just assume it's a binary one or zero thing. And it's just like, oh, more, 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 more. So- Just reflecting on the IPO process and having just gone through it, and for the reasons that we discussed in the conversation earlier, I feel that ours went pretty well. At the same time, so grueling, even though it was going well, I can't imagine what it must be like to be on the inside and going through this process as they're walking everything back, as they're trying to fix governance on the fly, as they're getting the crap kicked out of them by investors, the crap kicked out of them in the press every day. I'm not saying it shouldn't be happening. This is the market working and the market can be cruel. In fact, the market doesn't care. Right. The market is amoral, right? It is. It is absolutely amoral. And that's the great thing about it. But in terms of 
going through what they're going through, it must be rough. Yeah. I mean, it could be company killing rough. It should be a real warning to companies in the private markets. I mean, I've long argued that companies need to go public sooner, that it's actually a good thing. It's a good thing for you as a company. It's a good thing for your long-term outcome. I know we've had debates about this, but I am a believer. I don't buy the whole stock market drives short-termism. I think a lot of companies that do things like stock buybacks and act in a short-term manner should be acting in a short-term manner and should be returning money to shareholders. And actually, companies with real long-term visions do tend to get rewarded by the market. But whether you agree or disagree with it or not, there's some degree of discipline that is necessary. And was it really worth it for Uber? Was it really worth it for WeWork to get these? And it sounds so great. We get this massive valuation and everyone is in there counting their future earnings. Guess what? Those future earnings are worth jack unless you actually get to market. It's going to be easy to say, oh, WeWork is an exception. Or, you know that We're not like that. I think that you may be more like that than you think. And to the extent that companies go public sooner, go public at the right time, avoid this private money where the valuation decision is made by two people instead of being made by lots of people, I think would be a better thing for the vast, vast, vast majority of companies. Yeah. Because it's the fluctuations that kill you, right? It's like this wild swings up and then people come in on expectations and then it's wild swings down. Yeah, but people complain about that in the stock market. Like, oh, it's so hard to go to the stock market. You can be up 20% one day and down 20% the next. Guess what's worse? Being down like 85% or 90% when you go public. Or, or I mean, maybe WeWork is extreme, but something like Uber, right? From like 90 billion or whatever was their highest reach to, to 58, what they are today. Like that hurts way worse than sort of day-to-day. The day-to-day fluctuations can be frustrating and challenging, but like it can be crushing to have like a 30, 40, 50% correction. Yeah, totally. And I mean, again, putting perspective on this as well, in the long run, I mean, in the sh- it's the old Warren Buffett quote, right? I'm pretty sure it was Buffett. In the short run, it's a voting machine. In the long run, it's a weighing machine. And like we've, we've seen examples of companies getting crushed by the voting machine and like Facebook comes to mind. And like in the long run, they came like it's a weighing machine. And if you've built a solid business, uh, the, you can prove the market's wrong. Uh, I mean, Apple's another example where they like during the period you started writing, they were catac- they were, they were just, consistently undervalued people didn't understand the nature of the opportunity and they delivered and now one of the most valuable companies in the world so it is benjamin graham who was who was a uh, a someone that was looked up to you. and followed uh, meant, uh, uh by by warren buffett but yes yes okay um the, uh, thank you for the correction but i the, the 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 um i think the idea still stands and that's important to keep in mind as we talk about ipos like th- this is just Like I said, I think it's just like applying for grad school and maybe you get in and maybe it's successful, but it's like the hard work then comes afterwards. Like you've then got to go on and complete school and go find a job and do all those things that, that really matter. It's like, yes, it's nice to have like this fantastic moment and I think it's important and you don't want the wild swings and God knows you don't want to go through what WeWork's gone through, but it's like one step in a much longer journey. That's right. That's right. I completely agree. And at the end of the day, you don't, they don't put on your grave, got admitted to Harvard Business School. Uh, yeah. They put on your grave what you actually accomplished. Well, that's right. If they put that on, if they put that on your grave, then you haven't it's done much with that, that degree. Yeah. <laughs> Very good. Well, uh, it is good to be back. Uh, congratulations on a, on a successful IPO. Uh, good luck in enduring the lockup period. Uh, <laughs> so you, you get to enjoy the IPO and not actually enjoy the IPO. So um uh, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, I don't. I, think you, I don't I, think you said anything that got yourself in trouble. I hope not. But like this process is just. I mean, I, I 
like to, like on a personal note i kind i came to this company 12 months ago and it's a fantastic company and the opportunity to go through this and see how it works and help contribute and and help help folks who've been working at this for 10 years has just been an absolute blast and peering behind the curtain on how all this this stuff all works is just been really fun and i i hope folks found it interesting cuz i didn't really i like i <laughs> I like I'm less likely to tell banker jokes now having worked with some of the folks at Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. They're actually good people. They're they actually, very good they at actually, what they, they do. actually have value. Actually do something useful. Oh my god. And that I, I I really enjoyed working with them too, to be honest. Like that they're, they're fantastic. Um so the the whole process, just being able to go through it's been fantastic. And I hope um I hope like like this little peer behind the curtain for everyone listening has been interesting as well. I think it will be. I think it will be. All right. Well, we will. Um, I th- there's a good chance we'll be back next week. I think we going forward. Uh, you're a little busier than you were before. Uh, I think we'll we'll probably take it take it as we go. But yeah. uh, but Exponent is not gone. It's just it's just a uh, you know in a quiet period. <laughs> we were in a quiet period, and now we're in a noisier period. And so uh, we, we appreciate everyone sort of sticking around and waiting for us to come back. Yeah, I, I'm on the road the next couple of weeks. I might pack my microphone, so maybe you'll sit here from us next week. Maybe right. not, but we'll, we'll, we'll be back. We, we are back. We are back. Yes, that's right. And we didn't we didn't go anywhere all along. It turns out, yeah. right? Sounds good. I will talk to you soon. Really good to chat, Ben. All right. Yep. Bye bye.